Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, my name is Jamie Casebeer, and this is Our Impact, the show that explores what our impact is, what we can do about it, and how we can scale positive outcomes and solutions. Today's episode is brought to you by Fat Tire Amber Ale, America's first carbon neutral beer and one of my favorite brands. They've been B Corp certified since 2013 and the first brewery to join 1% for the planet. To learn more about their initiatives around sustainability, visit drinksustainably.com. My guest today is Peter Daring. Peter founded Peak Design, arguably one of the world's best camera accessory companies, and he co-founded Climate Neutral, the nonprofit certification for brands that measure and offset their entire carbon footprint. In this conversation, we talk about how Peak Design doesn't operate the same as most businesses. They're climate neutral and B Corp certified, as well as a 1% for the planet member. They also have a unique purpose and mission, which we discussed in the beginning. Peter explains the problem he faced when trying to understand Peak Design's environmental impact. Measuring Peak Design's carbon footprint was complex and expensive, and he was being asked to pay more to measure the footprint than it would have cost to offset the entire thing. This episode has a bit for everyone, whether you only have a vague understanding of a carbon footprint or you're keen to get a bit wonky and into the weeds. I've got a lot of respect for Peter and how he saw two problems in the world and created beautiful and useful solutions for them with Peak Design and Climate Neutral. I've learned a lot from my conversations with Peter, and I hope you do from this one today. Enjoy. Peter Darren, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate you taking the time on your birthday, nonetheless. Happy birthday. You can out me like that right off the get. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Pleased to be here, Jeremy. Wouldn't want to be anywhere other place. <laughs> yeah, man, I appreciate it. So today's episode is about climate neutral and carbon neutrality, but first I want to touch on peak design because that was obviously how you got started in your, I guess, climate journey and what kind of what led to it. I got introduced to peak a few years ago and it doesn't operate like most other brands or businesses. Your purpose is to create happy, meaningful lives for the people that work there. And you definitely have a unique business model, no outside funding, and you've pretty much done everything through Kickstarter. How's that allowed you to operate with freedom and pursue your mission? I, obviously, there's just nobody, you know, hanging over my head um, that's kind of intimating. And maybe you should do things this way or, or that way. And it's funny. I've just I've I've known no other way. You know, this was my first business. Yeah. Um, it was this whole notion of getting outside investors. It's not. It wasn't even really that deliberative a choice. I didn't think that the world of investing was going to be open to me when I started this company. I, I think I even kind of naively thought that that a business ought to be something where you make something for a certain amount and then you uh, sell it for more and you make a profit. And so the business has always been really focused on that. Um, and it's been a, a great way to kind of live beneath our means. And I think teaches us something about humility and, the crazy thing to me is just how few companies actually do it this way. The purpose of Peak Design is to create happy and meaningful lives for the people that work there. And the mission has six components. Make the best thing, succeed at the expense of nobody, treat our customers as peers, offset an environmental impact, use our voice to inspire positive change, and prioritize happiness over growth. It's not exactly your average company's purpose or mission. How or when did Peak's focus on its environmental impact begin? Well, that's a good question. Let me say that there was always an interest in sustainability. For yeah. me personally, that started in college. 
I was introduced to the concept of sustainability. I was in the construction industry before and uh, very interested in green buildings. I was a lead accredited professional. I brought a couple buildings through lead cert certification. But as far as peak was concerned, yeah, it took a little while to figure out like what's our environmental angle. We joined 1% for the planet, I think very meaningfully in 2015. And that just kind of, it was really the first time that I had given any money away. I wasn't exposed to philanthropy growing up. Yeah. Mom was a nurse. My dad was a firefighter. You know, they weren't, there wasn't a lot of extra cash to throw around. Maybe, maybe drop some in the offering bin at the Lutheran church every week, at least for my mom. <laughs> but other than that, you know, giving wasn't, wasn't really a thing. But by 2015, we were making money, you know, not hand over fist, but we were making money. And Annie, who had joined our team, who runs sustainability and CSR for us now, brought up 1% for the planet. And frankly, it kind of felt like a no-brainer. And so we joined up and we got really involved right away. Started advertising it to our customers, carried it as a belief that like, gosh, if everyone, if every company did this, um, our environmental problems might look a little, little bit different. So that was 2015, but it was still a bit, you know, kind of like, just kind of broad, giving to a wide array of charitable organizations, some attacking climate change, some biodiversity, some specifically like ocean-based and some spe specifically river-based. And that was a good foundation for getting into the world of environmental nonprofits. And we still perform as much of that giving as we can. But what was really kind of game-changing was at the end of 2017, going over to Vietnam and looking at our soft goods production. And we had sort of consolidated factories and warehouses and looking at just what one month's worth of raw materials that were going into peak design bags looked like. Yeah, And it was this, it was an, a, a huge wall full of material. And I was kind of, you know, mouth agape, like that that's one month worth of supply. And it was like, oh shit, we are part of the problem now. Yeah. You know, before it felt like we were kind of skating by, like we make these little gadgets and you never see all these things gathered in one place. And so it just didn't feel like we were meaningful enough. Right, but that's tangible. Yeah. You kind of quickly see what, what it like, what sort of physical materials underpin what at that time was a $30 million a year business. And it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of plastic. It's a lot of textiles. It's a lot of metals in our case. And so the journey there then turned to, well, you know, it's like, we know there's an environmental footprint to this, but what, what is it really? And at the end of the day, all of those plastics and metals that we have, yeah. they represent a certain amount of raw materials being taken from the earth, which is actually, if you kind of look at things in the scale of how many raw materials we have, a very, very tiny portion. We're not running out of, Aluminums, we're not running out of plastics, you know, uh, pet the petrochemicals to make plastics, but it's the carbon that it takes to convert all that stuff. Look, it, it, it all ladders up to carbon. Every single yeah. raw material that we have, it gets converted. It takes a lot of energy to make that happen. We get our energy from CO2. Fortunately, this is a story that is becoming boring to people, which is great because it yeah. means people get it. Everyone's right? heard about it. It's becoming more. Everyone's heard about it. Thank God you know, but in 2017, even considering myself a bit of an environmentalist or at least environmentally minded, I had no idea what peak designs carbon footprint was. Yeah. So that's where I started the journey. 
And that journey started with figuring out, oh, who's a consultant that can measure a carbon footprint? Oh, what's it going to cost? Oh, $40,000? Oh, that sucks. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Here's your carbon footprint, approximately, you know, 16,700 tons. I was like, oh, okay. Is that good? Is that bad? Yeah. What does that mean? And it's like, well, it just is, you know? Sure. And so it was, it was all these different things. It was like, well, what are the ways we could reduce that? Um, that was one of the first things that we looked into, of course. And they're like, well, you, you guys use a lot of aluminum. You should use less aluminum. And it's like, well, that's going to be tough. Cause you know, our shit's made out of aluminum. Yeah, that's critical to the business. Pretty purposefully it's made out of aluminum. You know, if you tell an aircraft manufacturer, like, yeah, you should use less aluminum. <laughs> I guess they do make carbon fiber airplanes now, which are pretty sweet, but there's still a lot of <laughs> aluminum in them too. Anyway, it's just like, well, good suggestion, but we prefer to have a business, not not have a business. So we're going to keep using aluminum. And yes, we'll see if we can switch to recycled aluminum, which actually is a tremendous saver in terms of carbon footprint. Not that the world, well, in any case, I, it, it, it's, it's, it's definitely helpful to buy recycled aluminum because it demonstrates more demand for recycled aluminum, which effectively makes recovery efforts and recycling efforts more profitable. And therefore we might end up getting more recycled aluminum. Short of that, you know, the reduction efforts were like, well, don't, uh, don't airship your products. And we're already like, we don't want to airship our products. If we're airshipping our products, it means that we are in trouble basically, yeah. right? We haven't, we're going to miss some deadline. We're going to miss some critical component of sales. It's expensive to sh- airship products. Yeah. Versus shipping via large containers, which is cheaper, more efficient, less emissions. Totally, totally. And, you know, every business in the world is already heavily incentivized to ship the cheapest way possible because yeah. shipping is extremely import, uh, expensive. And generally speaking, that translates to how much energy are you burning, right? The reason it's expensive to fly it on a plane is not because of the cost of the pilot. It's because the cost of the fuel. Yeah. So in any case, enter at this point, the carbon offset mechanism. Now I had heard of carbon offsets um, throughout my time and basically understood them to be, well, you're paying someone in order to suck carbon out of the air or more commonly at the time, really kind of prevent some amount of carbon from getting to the air in the first place. And if it weren't for your financial assistance, that, you know, that, um, that landfill methane gas would have gone up in the air or that, uh, refrigerant wouldn't have been properly disposed of. So I, I kind of understood these things, but this is the beginning of getting into the market. And the first question I have naturally as someone who's, you know, has to run a business is, well, how much do these things cost? Yeah. Things started to get really interesting here because at the time we could access landfill gas offsets. And I'll try to paint that picture really quickly. So in, in the United States, um, there are, I think it's something like 4,000 municipal waste landfills. And about 2000 of those fall under a certain size requirement where uh, federal statutes do not demand that they be capped and that they collect all the methane and that they either flare that methane and turn into CO2, 
which is actually better for the environment, or they use it in the natural gas system and turn it into electricity. And so with those 2000 landfills, they're just kind of sitting there leaching their methane. Yeah. And, and methane enter- is hundreds of, or I believe around a hundred times worse for the environment than carbon. So capping the landfill so that methane doesn't release is vital. It's, it's extremely important, right? And there, it's this kind of curious situation where, you know, landfills don't run at a huge margin. So they're not going to do this out of the goodness of their heart. And it costs money to put in a well system and proper caps that will sufficiently get all the methane. And I was like, who's going to pay for it? If the government isn't, if, if policy is not going to force it, who's going to pay for it? And so enter the carbon offset mechanism yeah. and all of a sudden a, a company like peak design can say, well, we would like to cover that methane up in order to kind of make up for the carbon that we know we're putting in the air by making products in Vietnam and China and shipping them all over the world. Yeah. And it was this beautiful kind of symbiosis and the crazy thing is that it only cost about $3 a ton to offset that, that methane, which has to do with, well, how expensive is it to create a cap and well system and continue to run and min- maintain these systems? Um, and, then it, and, and then also a function of how much, you know, how much methane are we actually going to prevent from going into the air? And so it's actually quite a rigorous years long process to determine those things yeah. to build, to, to, to get licensure, to build the project, to build it, and then to start selling these credits. So they need the support and, of businesses bringing in that revenue to fund these projects, to cap the landfills or depending on the type of mechanism, reduce that carbon from entering or sequester it. Um, if it does. That's right. That's right. And and ultimately what you need to support projects like that and make it so that every landfill in America that's not required by law to be capped gets capped is you need to show demand. Yeah. And so I was kind of blown away when they're selling at $3 a ton. Our footprint was about 20,000 tons. That's $60,000 going toward carbon mitigation. Now, Mr. Consultant just charged me $40,000 to measure my footprint. Yeah. And I have to pay only 60,000 to offset the whole thing. And so, uh, you know, it doesn't take a genius to, to say, well, that's, that's a little screwed up. So this idea started just kind of kicking around in my head saying, wait a second, how come, first off, how come it's not a lot cheaper to measure your carbon footprint? Cause at the end of the day, the question has so much to do with like, how much money are you spending on things? Yeah, that's one of the things when I first heard you say in an article or podcast that you were being asked to spend more to measure your carbon footprint as precisely as possible uh, with expensive consultants rather than estimating it with good science and then using that money you saved from not paying the consultants to offset the entire thing and put more money towards these carbon offset projects and mitigation. That just blew me away. So this was part of what led you to co-founding Climate Neutral. Can you give an overview about Climate Neutral for the listeners and that may not be familiar with it already? Sure. Climate Neutral is an organization that promotes a certification called Certified 
climate neutral. And companies that have measured the entirety of their carbon footprint, shown meaningful steps each year toward reduction, toward reducing that carbon footprint, but then critically have purchased enough offsets to eradicate the entirety of their carbon footprint, those brands qualify as being certified climate neutral. And so the organization itself has created a software tool to help companies measure their carbon footprint. And then we also do work on the back end to make sure that companies are purchasing verified carbon offsets. And we even add an extra layer of kind of certainty as to the veracity of the offsets. For instance, we don't allow um, industrial gas destruction as a qualified offset. There's been too much controversy around the notion of, is that offset real? Is it just an accounting scheme? And so we kind of have the ability to say like, yeah, let's, let's not touch that with the 10 foot pole. And let's focus on the ones that have a, a more credible path for veracity. And the cool thing about that software is I actually went through it with a brand I'm working with, the brand emissions estimator. And within 10, 15 minutes with some simple financial data that every company has, you can get a rough estimate of that brand's carbon footprint, which is kind of mind boggling. And then obviously, if you want to go through certification, you have to go through the aggregation workbook and dive into all the different aspects of the business. But within 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you can get a rough snapshot and then start to dial it back from there, which is, you know, I think for any brand that's wants to take that first step, but a little bit nervous and kind of scared that I think mm -hmm. that's a really powerful, powerful tool to show them that, look, we've done the work for you. We've mm -hmm. worked with the scientists. We have the large data sets and this is the first step. And it's not as scary or difficult or expensive as you think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm so, I'm so pleased to hear you say that. And, and so pleased that it exists and it, it exists alongside a number of for-profit companies that are continuing to try to, you know, reap big profits in the world of carbon measurement because they sense there's a, a market for it. And I get that there's a market for it, but to me, this is one of the areas where a nonprofit makes sense. Yeah. We, I, the thing that we need at scale is is our, our legitimate carbon offsetting projects and carbon removal projects. And those things, in my opinion, they need to be a profit-driven mechanism. But we don't need someone to add costs to the equation by trying to profit from the measurement aspect of this. Exactly. Our measurements are sound. And what's hilarious is that there are still some companies that, I don't know if it's a guilt complex or what it is, but they feel like, well, if we don't pay enough for the measurement, then we're not doing enough penance yeah. or something like that. So. I don't, I don't know what to do about that other than kind of laugh at the ridiculousness of it. But here we are. And the good news is that I think that Climate Neutral has a huge head of steam right now and is picking up a lot of brands really rapidly. Yeah. So I'm not too worried about that. And that was the thing that I was so excited about. And when we first started talking, I believe last year is it's just incredible. You're making the process, you're removing, demystifying the entire process, basically. I had like a kind of reckoning too. When I measured my personal carbon footprint for the first time, I realized my, uh, the effect of all my travel with flights. And I was like, oh my God, where do I begin? And it took me so long to kind of figure it out through my own personal research. But it's really cool to see what you guys have done to build, basically simplify the process. Here's where you begin. Here's the process you follow. 
here's the best science. There's no, there's no doubts. There's no greenwashing. You're doing legitimate work because we vetted everything. You're purchasing verified offsets. And by doing that, you're creating, like you said, demand for the offsets and then also creating the label so that consumers know that the brands they're purchasing from are doing the good work and offsetting all of their emissions. Mm-hmm. Dude, well said. And it's actually fun to hear you kind of repeat back what what the what climate neutral looks like from the outside. And about three years after sort of the conception of this idea, it's actually there. It actually exists. You know, yeah. there's there's gonna be north of 400 brands that have joined by by the by mid-June, including some big ones, you know. Yeah. REI. REI. Of, of, yeah, of so climate cool. neutral. So cool. You know, they had a big carbon footprint that they weren't doing anything out about because naturally they're looking, they're looking at like, well, what can we do about this? And for REI to join up with that, what an incredible stamp of approval. And, you know, it's people sometimes get a little bit almost, I think, cautious about the fact that we've made it easy. Yeah. There's, there's an aversion to the notion that it should be easy. I've heard that as and, well from people that aren't familiar with it. They're like, is this legit? Is this? No, it is. The, we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't run away th- from things because they are perceived to be easy. And what we're doing is we're making it easy on the businesses. The hard work is developing carbon offset projects. I actually think of it a lot like my business. You know, what we do designing products the, and marketing products, there's about 40 of us at headquarters to me, that's actually relatively easy compared to making the things. Yeah, the actual manufacturing. Thousands of people, thousands of people, and like incredible clockwork-like operations and just hours and hours and hours of very, very hard work. I mean, tens of thousands of hours, obviously. Yeah. And, and so it is with carbon offsets. The hard work is not for the companies. The companies need to write checks. They need to finance the transition to a low carbon future. They need to stop allowing their products, which have a carbon footprint, to simply pollute without cost. You know, in, in a perfect world, we would we would perfectly know what the cost to uh, to the environmental issues that we're that we're facing down are. More importantly, we would apply that to every single business. And therefore, you'd have this pool of money that would go toward mitigation efforts. Governments have never been able to organize around this. And this is the first meaningful, large-scale attempt to have corporations say, you know what? We're not going to wait for governments. We know it's our responsibility. Let's just do it voluntarily. So like we were just talking about, Climate neutral is basically streamlining the process, making it simple, pooling brands together to pay for their offsets, trying to lower the overall price when they purchase it, make it more straightforward. And what is that working towards? Is that working towards putting that price on carbon? What's like the end goal with climate neutral? The end goal with climate neutral. That's an interesting I know that's a pretty heavy, big question, but. Yeah. It is putting a price on carbon. And it's doing so in a way where it's kind of, there's there's two approaches to putting a price on carbon. You can look at the social cost of what climate change is going to be. You can try to 
like literally price the negative externality to humans of climate change. And that seems hard. Um, granted, I think people have dedicated their lives to this study and perhaps they're doing a good job and perhaps $55 a ton is the correct social cost of carbon. I don't know. I know that another way of pricing carbon is to say, what is the cheapest way I can get a ton of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? That's the price of carbon that I'm more interested in. And that's the one that reflects a market price that businesses can then align to. And one that is going to drive technological innovation, which is going to be required to draw down the amount of carbon that we have. Whether that comes from the innovation of more efficient systems, the innovation of renewable energies, or the innovation of actual machines that suck carbon out of the air and store it underground or turn it into solids, or you know, agricultural techniques that are going to implant that, that more carbon into our soil. It doesn't really matter. I don't care which of those win. And the fact of the matter, it's going to take fighting it on all fronts. But the, the, the goal of climate neutral is to really spur that demand. Yeah. The end game of climate neutral is it doesn't need to exist, right? Because we've, <laughs> we've licked it. But um, I think that's, that's going to be interesting. It will be interesting to know in, I think, five, in five years, climate neutral will be extremely relevant. I think in 10 years as well in 20, I'm not quite, I'm not quite so sure. I, I, I would imagine that we will have gone through some significant changes by then, you know, what it means to be carbon neutral, perhaps at that time, it'll be a function of, you know, in order to responsibly, you know, like perhaps at that time we won't be admit, emitting anything. Well, certainly we will be in 20 years. We're not going to have converted all the world's energy to renewables and all of the world's shipping, but maybe the responsible businesses will be drawing down five tons of carbon for every one they put up. I don't know. But the interesting thing is that it's, it's, it's important to create a brand that has gained stability, gains footing, so that it can be something that's meaningful both to customers and businesses throughout the years. So getting closer to the end game. Yeah, I like it. In my mind, there's like a trifecta of third-party certifications. Basically, for the someone that doesn't know, a third-party certification is a certification for a brand or business that takes verified actions with standards, with transparency. So you know that they're doing what they say they do. And in my mind, there's kind of a trifecta. There's B Corp, 1% for the planet, and now climate neutral. So how does climate neutral fit in to B Corp and 1% for the planet? And how do they kind of interact? What role is it filling? Well, climate neutral is the most directed of those three. I think that both B Lab or being a, becoming a B Corp and 1% for the planet are a much broader environmental platform, whereas climate neutral is very specific about attacking the, the issue of climate change. Um, it has been awesome to see B Lab and uh, B Labs, excuse me, and, and 1% for the planet sort of embrace climate neutral as the new kid on the block. They yeah. have been incredible in saying, you know, I think they've t they took a real hard look at, at what we're doing and said, okay, we believe in what they're doing and there is a place for this. And so 
That's why B Labs is beginning to ask people as they apply for B to become a B Corp, like, are you certified climate neutral? And with respect to 1% for the planet, not only are we a 1% for the planet org, excuse me, climate neutral is, yeah. um, meaning that we can receive dollars from, from organizations. People can also offset their own footprint by purchasing offsets through us or through Bonneville Environmental Foundation or through a carbon fund. So I just, I'm extremely grateful to those organizations who, you know, even in the nonprofit world, I think that competition is a real thing. Brands are a real thing that matter. Definitely. Um, is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's unfortunately still, there's a dog eat dog element to that, but they have acknowledged sort of a symbiotic relationship and really propelled us. Uh, and there's an idea too, that I've heard people feel this guilt, feel this shame around having an impact, having emissions. But the fact is there's no perfectly sustainable life. There's no perfectly sustainable business. There's an impact with everything. And some people feel that you shouldn't be able to pay for your sins. You shouldn't be able to offset your impact. And you kind of have a contrarian viewpoint to that. How do you feel about that? Oh yeah. I just think it's the most <laughs> ridiculous thing in the world. I mean, I think I was arguing with who is the director of sustainability at North face one time. And it was about offsets. And she was just saying vehemently, like you shouldn't be offsetting your footprint. You should be reducing it. And it's like, you work for North face, like your specific task and not just North face, but any company is to sell more, more value of clothing this year than you did last year. Yeah. That's your job to grow. And that's the job of everyone in this world of capitalism. And the notion that the North Face or anyone can meaningfully reduce their footprint, like in, in some kind of short time frame, and also grow sales is just ridiculous. It can't be done. North Face's supply chain and peak design supply chain in any company depends on typically literally hundreds of different businesses who all are consuming energy and, and like the carbon footprint is it's irreducible except for longer term reductions over time. All of those companies are going to be chipping away at the problem. There will be solar panels on the roof. There will be wind in the regions where they manufacture things. There will be storage facilities that can accommodate solar and wind. Like this is the 30 year transition that is going to occur and it's going to occur for a whole variety of reasons, policy, economics, all of it is going to be weighing in, but come on North face. You can't, you don't have control over that. Yeah. But what you do have is the ability to pay someone else to remove some carbon somewhere else from the earth. And the idea that that is a bad thing to do, that you should be somehow doing it yourself in setting or, or, or just, you know, not paying someone else to clean up your sins is ridiculous because the North Face pays another company to do nearly every other task for them. You know, the perfect analogy is like, well, who, you know, who cleans your, or excuse me, who hauls away your garbage, North Face? Yeah. Do you have North Face Sanitation Co.? No, you don't because you don't focus on sanitation. You focus on making killer outdoor gear. Same thing with making their products and shipping their products. So why should it be any different with removing carbon from the atmosphere? Why should North Face have to develop expertise 
in carbon mitigation, which is not an easy thing to develop expertise in. Why would any company who doesn't specialize in that expect to take on that onus? We have committed to specialization in this world and we've done so for very good reasons. And we're not going to be going back on that anytime soon. Is there anything about carbon offsets or climate neutral that you feel is either misunderstood or any points that you'd like to drive home for the average person? Like how do how can the average person engage with climate neutral and carbon neutrality in general? Well, I think the average person needs to understand this. When you see the climate neutral label, it means that a company has paid for their carbon. And I think that the average person is going to know that that's a good thing. Companies should have to pay for their carbon. And it's a very binary, black and white, literally logo. And it's intended to signify, did you pay for your carbon or didn't you? The less average consumer, the person who's a little bit more interested, I think needs to understand and appreciate more about the offset market. And I think it's important that they understand that even at this time, climate neutral is not claiming perfection in this world. I long for a day when a ton is a ton is a ton, meaning that I can go to the voluntary market for a reasonable price, somewhere between five and $20. I can purchase a carbon offset and know with absolute certainty that because I made that purchase, a ton of carbon was sucked out of the air or prevented from going into the air. We know that that is not the case right now, right? It's a much messier accounting game than that. But rather than allowing the imperfection of the world of carbon offsets and the difficulty in measure them interfere, we know that we're doing good by saying we are directing money from companies that would otherwise just go to their bottom lines toward specifically towards carbon mitigation techniques. And so those who would seek to criticize saying, yeah, but you've, you know, you, you funded a, you funded an anti-deforestation project in Brazil and they just cut down all the trees on the neighbor's plot. That sucks. And there are, there are techniques in order to grab large enough swaths of land. There are remote sensing techniques, but sometimes fires happen. Uh, sometimes shady accounting happens. And the best mechanisms against that are to assume it's going to happen at a certain rate and build that into Into your model. Yeah. And so I feel like there's this kind of, there's this world of environmentalists out there who I think wish for uh, just a more perfect world right now. And they have a willingness to shoot down these efforts because of their lack of perfection perhaps maybe just because of a desire to go back to a world where we didn't have machines and industrialization and technology. And I understand that desire, but there is a web of necessity that I think even the most hardcore environmentalists realize that, you know what, a standard of living is a nice thing. Jobs are good to have. People not starving is a good thing. And right now, all of that is underpinned by fossil fuels. Less and less every day as a proportion. Let's remember that every single day, it's getting better. 
and that progress. pace is going to quicken. We are making progress. I guess as a follow-up to that, I've been personally trying to figure out kind of the connection between individual action, collective action and communities and getting towards systemic change through business and policy. I guess the way I'm thinking about it currently is individual actions by themselves are not insignificant, but they're small compared to the size of the problem and the impacts that large businesses and governments and countries have. But when people start demanding certain things from businesses, when people start collective actions and businesses listen, so do governments, so do elected officials. And those signals from individuals and collective actions do reach businesses, do reach elected officials and do create policy eventually, although it can be slower and then kind of all at once start to happen. What's your kind of take on how individual action policy businesses and communities kind of intertwine? Is that kind of getting? Yeah, it's, it's voting. It's voting. And I just don't, I don't just mean at the polls. Yeah. Uh, it's voting with your dollars. Like this is, this is the individual collective action. Businesses are extremely keen at listening to like, Oh, what are the, what, what do the customers want right now? Yeah. You know, they want, they want your money <laughs> and the, the these businesses. And when they hear like, Oh gosh, they're not going to, they're not going to buy our products unless we do a little bit more right by the environment. Yeah. That's really beginning to happen in a meaningful way. And then the other way is, is actual politics and, and pushing forward policies that are, that are really meaningful. And man, I tell you what, old sleepy Joe, that guy's putting in some policies that are extremely progressive, but also in a way that in my opinion, I mean, I've been saying for so long, the two things that this like healthcare is a mess and yes, that's got all sorts of problems. But what we really need in this world is we need early childhood education, lots of it. And we need energy infrastructure because we need, we need the guys in trucks to have good jobs again. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, there, there's, there's too small a number of great jobs in the world of trades right now. And, you know, I, this, this, this country needs to heal so bad. And, and, and a huge reason for the division that we have is that great jobs have just run away from smaller town America, middle America. And that's not to suggest that all the other social problems that we have aren't important, but polarization, in my opinion, is at the very top of them. And I don't think that if, if more attention were being paid to the world of people who build things and put them into place, and that if that future looked brighter, I think you'd have a lot less, um, yeah, a lot less fodder for the polarization that we have. Agreed. Agreed. All right, man. Well, I know we've been talking for quite a while and I appreciate your time. A couple quick hitters to wrap up. What is your go-to spot to get into nature? Do you have a local park, hike, mountain, beach? I've got, I'll, I'll mention two. One's right outside my, my back gate in San Francisco. There's a hill called Bernal. And it's, it's the most beautiful chunk of land. I've got, you know, owls and hawks and coyotes and like le legit, legit nature right out my back door. And I feel very fortunate for that. And then a little bit further afield, Ridgeline Drive above Stinson Beach in California. I was is, just up in Mount Tam. It's oh, unreal. Yeah, dude, that, that <laughs> west face of Mount Tam will just, it'll just knock you back. 
Yeah. You've got the ocean 2,000 feet below you, just like l- looking as vast as it is in this beautiful little towns of Stinson Beach and Bolinas and these gorgeous golden California rolling hills. It's just like the most California landscape. <laughs> and I absolutely love to ride my bike up there, um, hike around there. Maybe one of these days I'll have the guts to launch a parachute from there because that's uh, it's also it's also a launch spot for that. Um, <laughs> I don't know if life I don't know what has to happen in my life to finally get me to do that. It looks I've, so unbelievably rad. I've been wanting to do it too, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of trust in either it yourself seconds. to do the training or someone else. I don't know. <laughs> totally. And then the last place is Desolation Wilderness in in Tahoe. This isn't a quick hitter, I realize. No, what I, a these quick hitters kind of suck. They take them wherever where you want to go. <laughs> yeah, right on. Um, is there a daily routine or action that's had an outsized impact in your life? Something you tried to do every single day, even though very few <laughs> it's people. It's kind of embarrassing, but when I got this new house, it had a it had a 1999 Hot Springs Jet Setter hot tub in the oh, back, yeah. and um, I go out and I'm in the hot tub to start my day every single day. And I absolutely <laughs> love it. I have my coffee out there. I get through some emails, but then I just like, sometimes I'll, you know, actually put on a meditation app and do the real meditation. But more often I just kind of stare at the trees for a bit and it's really sweet. I love it. Great way to start the day. Where do you get your information? Are there any magazines, websites, authors you read regularly, podcasts or newsletters you subscribe to? Mostly just Facebook. I've got this uncle who's super informed. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was going to say you had me there. <laughs> it's funny. I I used to read The Economist pretty regularly. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm I'm sort of taking a break right now from all things news news related. I deleted the news app from from my phone. I think that's an important thing to do. I don't have any notifications or emails coming through. I guess I still subscribe to morning brew. It's kind of like a guilty little pleasure. It's kind of fun, fun business news, but I try to keep my notifications and the information coming at me as scant as possible. And I I think that, you know, I, this is what one of the things I miss about COVID so much is that conversations with, with friends are, are, are really important as a foundation for like, Hey, you should lean into this. And then and then I guess I spend a lot of time on Wikipedia. Ah. I feel like that has remained this incredibly neutral source of information. So if you really want to learn more, I think Wikipedia is a good option. Is there a book you'd recommend to someone just trying to get curious about impact, social, environmental? Yeah. Sustainability Without the Hot Air. It was written in 2008, I think, by a, a Cambridge physicist who just put everything in the most simple terms about energy. And it, I, I think that if more people had an idea for more ideas about energy and what it means to power this world, uh, I just think it would, we should all be able to speak in that, in that kind of language. Yeah. Sustainable energy without the hot air. It's freely available. Check it out. Cool. I haven't read that yet, but I definitely will add it to the list. What are you most curious about right now? If you had a month sabbatical to research and go down any rabbit hole you want, what would it be? Hmm heat pumps yeah <laughs> it's the least sexy but everything i've been reading and learning about they're one of the best best solutions we have right now to have a massive impact in our buildings yeah they really are they seem to keep coming up for me and i think that's a good thing that 
that something like that, which isn't that sexy, is kind of getting some airtime right now. So, yeah. what is a strong first step or action someone can take to have a positive social or environmental impact in their life or community? Read sustainable energy without the hot air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Educate honestly, yourself. Get, get yourself educated. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you for taking the time, man, and especially on your birthday. Hope you have a beautiful day and are well celebrated. Thanks, man. Um, I've been getting lots of really kind notes from from folks, and it, uh, it's definitely been warming my heart up. So, but I'm, I'm, it's also a pleasure to do this with you, man. It's a good good use of my time on any day. Beautiful. I appreciate it, man. Sure thing. Take care, Jeremy. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter Daring. I like how Peter knows problems that should have simpler solutions and then went out and built a very successful business and nonprofit for them. I also appreciate how he has somewhat contrarian viewpoint on carbon being the most important environmental issue and that businesses should have to pay for their sins and the carbon they emit rather than not allowing businesses to do so. The first time I heard him make these points, I had to think a bit deeper and anytime that happens, I'm always grateful. Uh, it's always nice to challenge your viewpoints. Through my own experience and research, I've learned that looking for third-party certifications from brands and their products like Climate Neutral, B Corp, and 1% for the Planet is a very strong place to start with impact as an individual. Brands notice increasing sales and they adjust accordingly. And these third-party certifications offer our best shot at shifting consumer and business behavior and passing legislation to create an economy and society that's less extractive and more equitable for everyone. If you want to learn more about Climate Neutral, you can visit climateneutral.org and follow them on social. And if you want to learn more about B Corp, please check out episode two with Andy Fife. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with a friend. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.